Let us turn now to our second reading, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And we've already read these verses, so there's no need in going over them again. Now we see that this gospel was also called the gospel according to Peter. And the reason for that was that all, most, if not all, the information in this gospel was received from Peter. But from ancient times, it has been regarded as a gospel according to Mark, and that is how it is with us uh, to this day. Now, this gospel was written to the Christians in Rome, and that would include in all probability, Christians even out with Rome, Christians in Italy itself. It is reckoned to have been written between 60 and 70 AD. It is questionable if it was as late as 70 AD, for the simple reason that Jerusalem, of course, fell in that year. And it would seem strange to us that there would be no mention of that calamity in this gospel if it, had, if it had been written as late as 70 AD. But there would also have been ominous signs leading up to that calamity, and there's no mention of them either. So maybe the year 69 uh, would be uh, a safer uh, time rather than, than 60 to the year 70 AD. However, that, by the way, we learn a little about Mark in the Acts of the Apostles. We know that his mother's name was Mary and that Mary had a house in Jerusalem. And we also know that the church was gathered in that house when Peter was imprisoned. And remember how he was miraculously delivered and when he came to the door, Rhoda, who kept the door, was amazed that it was Peter and when she informed those present, they just didn't believe. And yet they were the very people who were praying for his release. And here he was released and they just didn't believe that it was Peter. So she owned a house in Jerusalem. And then we also know that he was a close relative of Barnabas. And we find in the Acts of the Apostle that on one missionary trip that he accompanied Paul and Barnabas. Uh, and then he forsook them at Pamphylia and returned to Jerusalem. And then on another occasion, Paul wanted them to visit the churches where they had ministered. And Barnabas insisted on having Mark to accompany them. And Paul opposed that because he had forsaken them at Pamphylia on their previous missionary journey. And there was a heated debate between the two of them. And at last, they parted company. And Barnabas took Mark and went to minister in Cyprus. And Paul took Silas and continued in his ministry. 
in the providence of God, in all probability, friends, it was more beneficial to separate Paul and Barnabas because the truth would be disseminated more widely and more quickly by having these men separated rather than keeping them together. God's ways are past finding out. So they parted company, but were thankful that before Paul came to the end of his days, and you have that on record in Second Timothy chapter 4, and I think it's verse either 11 or 12, that he instructed Timothy to bring Mark, and in his own words, for he is profitable to me in the ministry. So it is nice to see that there was reconciliation before Paul came to the end of his days. Nevertheless, friends, there are times when we have to make a stand for what we believe to be true. Maybe Mark, you see, wasn't dependable at that early stage in the ministry. And Mark had to learn uh, some serious lessons. And the years had taught him. And this is what the years do to every one of us. Uh, we are disciplined by the Lord and humbled uh, and brought to discover things about ourselves and uh, these discoveries are to our own benefit and maybe to the benefit of others as well. We find that Mark also demonstrates uh, good knowledge of the Old Testament in relation to the church. And in this gospel or this account of his, he records 19 miracles. And we are tonight going to look at this particular miracle that is recorded for us in these 12 verses. And I want to look at this miracle under three headings. Uh, first of all, I want to consider um, the, the, the faith of these men. And uh, secondly, we shall consider, of course, the opposition that was raised when Christ pardoned sin. And thirdly, how the physical miracle verified that sins had been parted. So first of all then, let us consider the faith of these four men. This miracle took place in Capernaum. And in John chapter 2 and verse 12, we there read that Mary and her family, including Jesus, there's no mention of Joseph, in all probability he was dead by then, that they removed from Nazareth to Capernaum. Why was this done? We are not told, but some maintain it was to give greater publicity to Christ and to his ministry, that Nazareth was too obscure for that, and hence they moved to a more populated area. As to whether that is the reason or not, we don't know. And we must remember, it doesn't matter how obscure any place can be, God can still work mightily there. What could have been more obscure than the desert place to which Philip was sent from Samaria, where his ministry was being blessed? And there he ministered to one single individual, but that person was saved, the Ethiopian eunuch. And then he was directed by God to another field of labor. So, whether it was to grant more scope to Christ's ministry or not, we don't know. There was a reason 
for moving. And after a few days, they moved up to Jerusalem uh, to the feast. So some maintain that the miracle took place then within that home. Others believe that it took place within uh, the home of Andrew and Peter's parents. Where it took place, friends, is neither here nor there. What matters is that it took place within a house in Capernaum. The next thing we have to uh, ask ourselves is what kind of faith did these four men have? You can't deny that it wasn't strong. They went to the trouble of carrying this friend of theirs. And it's not easy carrying a person over a distance. And they had confidence that their labor would not be in vain. See, you have four kinds of faith. You have, first of all, temporary faith. Christ brought that to your attention uh, in the parable of the seed that fell on shallow ground. It grew immediately. There was a lot of promise, but it didn't last. It faded away. Then, of course, you have um, you have also uh, um, the belief, the assent to the truth, uh, and uh, we find even that the devils have that kind of faith. They believe and they tremble. And then you have miraculous faith. And that is people who believed in Jesus as a miracle worker. They had seen others uh, healed by him and brought, brought from the dead. And they believed that Christ could heal. So they had miraculous faith. And fourthly, there is saving faith. So narrowing it down. We can narrow it down to miraculous faith or saving faith. Personally, and I stand to be corrected, I feel that it was miraculous faith. Why do I say so? Well, this man was an unconverted man, and their only concern was for the physical life of this man. He had a palsy, that he would be healed from the palsy. There's no word about his spiritual well-being. And for that reason, I'm inclined to think that maybe it was faith, miraculous faith, they had in bringing this man. And they were confident that in bringing him, their efforts were not in vain. Now, the next thing we have to consider is this. During Christ's time on earth, uh, most people believe that before a miracle could be performed, that he would have to be physically present, or else the person on whom the miracle was to be performed had to be brought physically to Christ. And you have even Martha and Mary guilty of that. Remember when Lazarus fell sick, they sent word to Jesus and told him, him whom Thou lovest is sick. But Jesus didn't budge from where he was. Jesus remained where he was for a further four days. And by the time he had returned uh, to Bethany, Lazarus had been buried for four days. Remember what Martha said, By now he stinketh. The body would have decomposed. 
so he didn't move. And when word was brought to Martha, it must have been whispered in her ear because nobody else in the room heard a word. She left immediately. And when she came to Jesus, the first thing she said to Jesus was, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. There you go. Again, you have an example that he would have to be physically present to perform a miracle. And then when Mary was informed, this was done audibly, because those present in the room followed her when she left. She came to Jesus, she had the same message, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. You have also the nobleman in uh, Capernaum, he came on behalf of his son, and he asked Jesus to come down to his son to heal him. And Jesus said, Jesus told him there and then, thy son liveth. And he believed. And when he returned home, he asked the servant, when uh, did his health amend? And they told him, at this, that's the hour he expected when Jesus spoke to him. And it's in that context we have to appreciate the faith of the centurion. Remember what Christ said to him, or rather, first of all, what the centurion said to Christ. I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but say the word only, and my servant shall be healed. And what was Christ's response? I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. He didn't need the physical presence of God. Say the word, and it's done. And it was done, friends. So we've got to take cognizance of that. Now these houses were flat roofed with an external stair. And these men, when they set off, as we say nowadays, they must have had a plan A and a plan B. Because, I suppose, we were hopeful they would find Christ outside, in the open, be easy to bring their friend before him. But uh, on the other hand, they realized that there could be problems. And why do I say so? Well, when they couldn't access Christ, having come to the house, we're told that they went up on the roof, pulled back the tiling, and lowered their friend down to be at Christ's feet. In other words, they left home with a rope. There's no word that they went looking for a rope. They had a rope with them. They were anticipating a problem. And when they, of course, arrived there, the place was packed. Uh, before, wakes were held in church buildings and they were held in houses. I can tell you they were packed to the door. And when you went to these houses to conduct a service, it was a struggle to get through the crowd to the spot where you were going to conduct that service. And you only had just a few square feet to stand there. People were outside. This was something of that nature that was here. So when they would arrive, the people there would say, oh, you have no hope of bringing that stretcher in before Christ. But they were undaunted by that. They had, of course, the rope with them, and so plan B was immediately initiated and went up on the roof and lowered Christ, lowered him down there before them. So even if it was miraculous faith, it is to be commended. They didn't allow any obstacles whatsoever to come between them and the bringing of their friend before Jesus. Now, there's a word here in the passing to anybody present. Maybe you're here tonight and you pray earnestly on behalf of a loved one. 
maybe a husband, an unbelieving husband, or an unbelieving wife, or an unbelieving family, and you've been praying for years, and nothing has happened. Don't give up, friends. When I'm wrestling and praying about something for years, I'm encouraged by the widow who came to the unjust judge. She would have none of his refusals. She was determined that what she wanted, she it would be granted. So she persevered. Or you have to be encouraged by uh, Jacob wrestling there at Penuel all night, and he wouldn't let the angel go until he blessed him. Or be encouraged by the Syrophoenician woman, for Christ told her would have, would have disheartened anyone, would have turned anybody away, but not that woman. Ah, but the dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And that was immediately followed by, O woman, great is thy faith. And Augustine tells us that his mother Monica wrestled for his salvation for many, many years. And eventually God heard her prayer and what a gift he was to the church. He was an outstanding thinker, friends. And remember these, these men didn't have huge libraries that we have nowadays. And that shows how original they were as thinkers and the great contribution they made. However, that by the way. So these men would have been relieved to have brought their friend and placed them there at Christ's feet. That takes us to our second uh, heading. And that is the opposition evoked by the pardoning of this man's sins. I suppose they expected Christ maybe to touch him or to say, Arise, and their friend would have been healed and they'd be on their way home within a short while. But that didn't happen. It didn't happen. So, to their astonishment, he pardoned his sins. Pardoned his sins. Now, friends, you got to realize that Pardoning sin is something that's invisible. You can't see into a person's soul. You can't see into a person's conscience. You can't see into his heart. How do you know that anybody's sins are pardoned? The person himself knows. He knows by the joy that is in his heart. He knows by the peace of conscience. He knows that God's face is no longer turned against him in anger. He knows that he is reconciled to God. But how do people know that? The only way people can know that is given time. That the life, the changed life, will become evident to everybody. That if it was a man given to drink, that the drink has been abandoned. If it was a man given to gambling, the gambling is abandoned. If it was a man given to uh, foul language, it is abandoned. And then the company he keeps is no longer the company of the drunkard or the drug addict or the gamblers or, or fornicators. It is the company of the saints. As Christ said, by their fruits ye shall know them. That's the only way we know that somebody's sins have been pardoned by the life, the exemplary life that person lives. And lives that kind of life which only a, a true believer wants to live. But there's too short a time here to know that this man's sins had been forgiven. And I think 
we could pause again in the passage and just say this day. Some people maybe are praying for a loved one who is sick, uh, for, for, for the person to recover. But time moves by and their prayers are not answered. What happens is God converts that person. And then maybe many months or a long time after that, their prayer is answered and there is the physical recovery. God's ways, friends, are past finding out. We cannot question and, and the importance of acquiescing in the will of God, not challenge your question, even when things happen that hurt us. Things that are not easy to bear. It's all for a purpose. God withholds no good from his people. None. And it's so easy for us to interpret some things as being harsh and, and, and bitter and unkind. They aren't. That's what the devil would uh, like to provoke us into thinking. But God is always a loving God. A God who cares for his own. And he has got his own way of disciplining us, humbling us, and bringing us there to his footstool. So here then, Christ had pardoned his sins. And present were the scribes. And they were always in the company of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, always looking for something, thinking they could find a fault in Christ and bring false accusations against him. And they were schooled in the written law and his oral interpretation. And they belonged, of course, to um, a, a, a school of legal specialists. So when they heard that Christ had pardoned this man's sin, immediately they accused him of blasphemy. Who can pardon sins but God alone? And this is why, of course, Christ, this was followed by the physical miracle to verify that sins had indeed been pardoned. And the man himself would know that his sins were pardoned. And if the man had been permitted to speak, he would have spoken loudly and clearly that he knew his sins were forgiven. He knew that there was a transformation within. He knew that he was brought from darkness to light. So let us leave then that second point there and move on to our third point, how the physical miracle verified that sin had been pardoned. Now the first thing, of course, we have to uh, keep in mind here is that Christ, by this physical miracle, we have what is said in is it verses 11 and 12, uh, validated the declaration that he made in uh, verse 5, when the sins of this man were pardoned. And we find Christ using a counter-argument, and that characterized the ministry of Christ. And the counter-argument was, right, what is easier? He threw the challenge. What is easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise, take up thy bed and walk? And they were speechless. They couldn't question that. They couldn't challenge that. And then follows the physical miracle. 
I say unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk. And before their eyes, that miracle, and that miracle made visible what they couldn't see. They couldn't see that sins had been pardoned. Now that they're seeing this physical miracle, Christ demonstrated the one who has the power to make this man stand and walk. He has also the power and authority to pardon sin. So that the two miracles took place there before their eyes and they would have been left speechless. Now this, the man with the palsy, he could have expostulated with Christ. He could have said, you're asking me to do what I cannot do. I've been like this for years. I can't. I would love to be able to get up, but I can't. But he didn't. He was asked to do what he couldn't do and he was expected to do it. And that is how it is with salvation as well. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's not a case of arguing. It's not a case of saying, I can't do that. Yes, left to ourselves, we can't do it. But in obedience to Christ, it is done. And maybe you're here tonight and you've heard many evangelistic sermons over the years. There were many appeals, there were many invitations to close in with Christ and you are tonight as far away from Christ as they were years ago. And although you've heard these very words quoted often, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they shall be saved, you went out that door the way you came in. Why? It is all because of unbelief. In salvation, we are asked to do what we cannot do, that is of ourselves, and yet we're expected to do it. Remember the man with the withered hand, stretch it forth, the man could have said, I can't. It's impossible. That's the way it's been all these years. He didn't. He did precisely what Christ told him. And that, is also, that also applies to sin. Any, any person here this evening who still, without a saving knowledge of Christ, you are commanded by Christ to believe. And if you believe, you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Now, we wonder what transpired between this man healed, and whose sins were forgiven, and his four friends that brought him. If, as I said earlier, they had a miraculous faith, would he not preach to them on the way home? There are so many things in the Bible that... A veil is drawn over. Remember the gathering demoniac. He wanted to accompany Christ. And said, no, no, no. You go back to your own people. And tell them what great things has been done for you. And wouldn't they listen? They knew this man. The state he had been in. And how Christ had transformed that light. They couldn't but listen, friends. And only the great day will reveal what great blessings came to the people of Gadara, through this man, the most unlikely of preachers, God's ways are past finding out. And who knows what blessings were brought to the four men who brought him there and 
to other relatives as well on account of this miracle, the twofold miracle that this man had experienced. We, we can't understand, friends, God's ways. You can find there ministers who labored for years, maybe in a certain place, and they have very little to show for their labors. And somebody else succeeds them, and he begins to reap from the very outset. But, you see, the point we must not forget is there could have been no reaping unless it had been preceded by the sowing. And so, at the end of the day, both the reaper and the sower rejoice together. God's ways are past finding out. We, we just can't question the wisdom of God in this matter. And so many things, then, are hidden from us in the Scriptures. And yet, there are Lots of things you can infer even from the little that is said. Remember when Christ met the woman there um, at the well at Samaria, uh, how to her witness many of the men came out and they were converted. And then they wanted Christ to come and stay with them and continue a ministry there. And he restricted his ministry there to two days. There's total silence about what happened. There's not a word mentioned what happened. But we can infer, indeed, from the little that is said, that the time would have been spent there in instructing these new converts, in bringing others into the kingdom. And then he moved on. And it may seem strange to us that he spent but two days where he was warmly received. And he spent most of his ministry amongst people who didn't want them. But that's God's ways. He came to minister to the Jews. And it was only at the end, after his resurrection, that national preteration was suspended forever. And the disciples were instructed to go and teach all nations. All nations, friend. The gospel wasn't to be withheld from any. And let us then be active also in bringing the truth before other people. We've got neighbors who are unbelievers. We've got maybe people in the workplace who are unbelievers. Do we remain silent? Do we withhold the gospel from them? We shouldn't. We should all be soul winners, every one of us. And as the opportunities arise to avail ourselves of these opportunities. May God bless to us then these few thoughts. Let us pray. Eternal and most holy God, we give thee praise and thanks for being together here this evening again and follow with thy blessing the seed sown today, not just amongst ourselves here, but throughout the church and throughout the nation and throughout the whole world. And when the seed is sown, we know, God, that thou art the God who is able to give thee increase. Where there is no knowledge of thee, then the people perish in their sins. So we pray, then, O God, for the truth, wherever it is proclaimed, to follow it with thy blessing. Take us now to our respective homes in safety. Be with us during the coming days. Undertake for us in everything and pardon sin for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Let us now sing to God's praise in Psalm 113, 
Psalm 113 and reading at the beginning of the psalm. Praise God, ye servants of the Lord. O praise the Lord's name, praise. Ye blessed be the name of God from this time forth always. From rising sun to where it sets, God's name is to be praised. Above all nations, God is high, above heavens, his glory raised. Unto the Lord our God that dwells on high who can compare, himself that humbler things to see in heaven and earth that are. He from the dust doth raise the poor that very low doth lie, and from the dung he lifts the man oppressed with poverty. Uh, I was going to give just verses 1 to it, but we might, let's not just leave the last verse. So you can sing the whole psalm then. Praise God. <coughs> Praise God, Oh. 
Gemisch, the prayer meeting on Thursday at 7.30 will be taken by Mr. Ian Martin. The service next Sabbath, the usual times of 11 a.m. 6.30 p.m., the preacher is still to be arranged. And the October witness magazines have now arrived and are on the vestibule table. There are also some of the TBS annual report magazines on the table. These are all the intimations. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.